Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest uh, for this episode is Mr. Dave Marcus. So, Dave, say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. Tony, thanks for having me. Uh, more than happy to, uh, to have you on, uh, as we kind of, uh, talked about a little bit already, it, it has been, uh, far too long since we've had an actual, like, uh, you know, face to face, even virtually <laughs> chat. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot, a lot has changed, uh, since you and I last spoke, but, uh, actually it was, it's interesting. I, I, where did I, I just commented yesterday on something that someone posted where I was I said, yeah, it, it's interesting to kind of see how much everything has changed and yet hasn't. You know, that's kind of like I feel like a running theme for cybersecurity. It's like things are constantly changing and yet not. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah and so so, you know, the, the thing I said I, I wanted to kind of get into and, and, and I think it kind of fits that that description to some extent is. You know, in the last, you know, six months or whatever, we've had the revelations of the the the, the solar winds breach, um, and then you had the more recently the hafnium breach, and you know, solar winds is attributed to Russia, hafnium is attributed to China, and um, you know, both of these are, you know, huge, you know, massive, you know, the the, the kind of the the, the extent the the impact of the, of the breaches is huge and to me i feel like it it it, it is it is it has blurred the line some i feel like traditionally small and medium businesses and consumers feel like oh well yeah you know i know russia's doing stuff i know china's doing stuff hell even our allies are 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 hacking us it's just part of the spycraft um you know and i know those things happen but I'm not a government agency. I'm not part of the defense industrial complex. Um, so I don't need to worry about that. And, uh, you know, I feel like that that line is gone more or less, especially, you know, not only from the perspective of kind of the way attacks work in general, that like when, when you have when you have the, the, the exploit and you're doing recon, you're just looking for vulnerable systems. You know, you're not stopping to figure out, well, is this vulnerable system in Raytheon or is this vulnerable system in, you know, Home Depot? Mm -hmm. um, you don't really care. Um, and there's also, uh, and I, I actually kind of want to do the research on this. Uh, I feel like there's a Kevin Bacon effect in cybersecurity as well. There's a six degrees of separation. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, yeah, Home Depot, you know, might not be directly related, but I, if I can get from Home Depot and, and within five hops get to the Department of Defense, that's right. That's it's still, it's still relevant. That's absolutely correct. And, and that's actually the bigger part of it, I think, than anything else. And I don't know that it's six degrees of separation, by the way. I think it might actually only be one or two degrees of separation, really. Um, because if you target a supplier, you can get to everybody that supplier supplies theoretically in some way, shape or form. Right. And I think there's a lot to be said for the power of, of doing something like that. And when you look at something like solar winds and all the people that use solar winds, small, medium and large enterprises and a lot of other people, you know, you got even regular pen testers who are huge users of solar winds. So if you can effectively compromise solar winds and their product set, you get everybody who's using that, that, that product set. Um, instead of having to compromise 18,000 or so enterprises that, let's say, use solar winds, I don't know how many people use solar winds, by the way, that's just a guess, but I, I can either compromise solar winds or I can compromise 18,000 people that use solar winds, right? Which makes more sense 
from from a, from an adversarial and a resource perspective. Go after the supplier in that sense. So I think it's a use case for effective targeting from that point of view. But yeah, you're also right in the sense that it completely blurs the lines between going after an enterprise because they're, like you said, Home Depot, or going after smaller users because you're going after anybody who uses the platform. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, and I feel like, I don't know how true this is in, in Russia. And actually, I'll be honest, I don't personally actually know for a fact, I can't cite evidence for either of these things, but I, I anecdotally feel like, um, you know, China in particular, there's no, you know, it's China. So whether it's a cyber crime organization or a government uh, agency, like, is there a difference? Like the cyber crime organizations all kind of answer to the government on, on some level or another anyway. Uh, so, you know, even, even cyber crime is nation state attacks if they come from China. Theoretically, you know, it comes down to the goals of the individual organization, right? So from a certain point of view, if it comes from geography X, it's related to geography X, right? Um, you, have, you, you could take the motivations out of it from that particular point of view. But you have to understand operationally how different organizations work. You know, you, you've got the MSS and the PLA, and then you've got their different organizational units within. And they've all got their individual missions, just, just like in Russia. You know, you've, you've got, you know, the GRU and you've got other things in Soviet intelligence that have a mission that they operate under. They, they, they are they are enforcing certain policies or certain directives. And some of them are cybercrime related. Some of them are nation state related. So it just depends on what the operator's individual mission is. But you also have to understand that those individual operators have nightlifes, right? You know, so so even though I may be an operator for APT1 or whoever, or APT28 during the day, I may moonlight. You know, I may engage in cybercrime in the evening times using some of my same tools, some of my same techniques or stuff that I've gotten from other boards. You know, so you've got this fluidity of the operators and their missions. So they may be doing their day job, quote unquote, their day job, um, but also moonlighting and doing other things. You know, so so there's blurring in how they operationally uh, move too. You know, it, it's it, it gets really tediously interesting depending upon how far you dig into it, Tony. You know, from from one point of view, it's all malware in some way, shape, or form. But then you've got the drivers that are different between all the operational units and stuff like that, which is really where, to me, it gets fascinating. Yeah. Well, I also think that uh, I got lost lost my train there a little bit, but um, it. it uh, you know, when when it comes to the you know, at at the point of attack, you know, and, and I think this is kind of you know one of the directions that that is, cybersecurity is heading in general is is sort of it. Let's say I am Home Depot, like I don't need to try to look at it like, well, is this a nation state attack, you know, or is this a you know a, an advanced persistent threat, or is this just your run of the mill you know malware, you know, is it ransomware? Like your 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 defense system you know, has to be able to detect that behavior and do something about it. Like the, the, the why is almost irrelevant. The why is irrelevant from certain points of view and very relevant from other points of view. So it, it depends on the system that you're talking about. So if, if there has to be a fundamental difference between the behaviors of consumer grade malware, let's just say that the stuff that's going to target your regular user, right? You know, the consumer grade stuff, the ransomware stuff, the regular password stealing Trojans, you know, the stuff that would fall on the left-hand side of the bell curve, 
right? You know, it's not as sophisticated as, as let's say, a nation state is. So let's put the nation state stuff on the right-hand side of the bell curve, right? So if your defense system can't accurately protect against consumer-grade malware, don't ever think that you're going to ever tell me that it can de detect and defend against nation state or true adversarial behaviors, right? Because there has to be a difference. There has to be a fundamental difference between the complexity or lack of complexity of consumer grade malware versus nation state activity. So from that point of view, you do have to know if you're defending against consumer grade malware, nation state malware, or truly adversarial, you know, advanced stuff. If there's a continuum then there needs to be a defense continuum as well. So you do have to know what you're protecting against from a certain point of view. Well, and there's also, uh, I, I feel like a lot of times a, um, uh, almost a marketing or public, public relations aspect to it when there's an attack, because it, immediately everything is, oh, well, this was a, you know, sophisticated adversary nation state attack. And it's like, you know that that's that's the that's the public relations line before they have any clue what actually happened. Yep, that's true. No, it, you're spot on correct about that. Well, let's be honest. It sounds better to say you got popped by a nation state adversary than you got popped by some low level malware, right? One right. sounds good, the other sounds like you really don't know what you're doing. But in the end, I come back to you know like you know, like you know like I'm not gonna I'm not not throwing like Solar Winds or, or or Microsoft or whatever under the bus, but. Uh -huh. To come out and say, oh, well, this was a, you know, a sophisticated uh, operation. It was a nation state uh, attack. They had these zero days. You know, they did these, you know, like whatever they did. It's like, OK, but ultimately, I still need you to protect against that. I still I still need you to do something like you can't just shrug your shoulders and go, well, it was a nation state attack. You know, no, that's certainly true. And you have to separate the you have to separate out the how solar winds got compromised from the from how it then compromised other enterprises, right? You have to separate the two things and understand them differently. To compromise solar winds and then affect their supply chain and to basically root their trust, meaning getting your malware actually into and incorporated into their product set is one thing. How it's utilized in the in the framework of at attacking others and compromising others is an entirely different ballgame, right? You know, so and, and people have to understand the differences between the two. Um, a supply chain attack of this order of magnitude is a big deal from how it actually happened, how they affected the build process, how they compromised keys, and how they distributed malware through SolarWinds actual, you know, enterprise and, and, and data sharing and partner agreements and stuff like that. That's one aspect of it. That, I think, is far more interesting um, than how it got utilized, right? Because once their, once their software was compromised, Theoretically, anybody who's utilizing that software is compromised, right? You know, you've got the root of trust and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I think that portion of it is a lot like any other attack, not Petya, you know, any other type of malware, ransomware. You know, once it's distributed out in the world, you know, either it's detected or it's not detected. You have to kind of put that to the side. But you have to understand that how SolarWinds got compromised, how their build process got compromised, and how their build process... <laughs> was incorporated to include malware within the build of the software themselves. That's a use case that people will be studying for a long time. Well, the other thing that I think is going to be, you know, a, a long time effect of this is not, you know, not everyone who was affected by solar winds has gone back and completely wiped their systems and rebuilt everything from scratch. 
Correct. And the thing is, we don't really know the extent to like, well, you know, what else did they do while they were in there? How many other like zero day backdoors are, are on the system that you just haven't figured out yet? And so, you know, this time next year, we could be having this same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And isn't it interesting how also every single week you see another report of another piece of malware was discovered in the solar winds compromise, right? You know, I don't know how many times um, I've seen sunburst and then the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one because the root of trust was compromised. They don't understand how far reaching that portion of it is. You make an excellent point. And in a year and a half, we could be having the same discussion because they don't realize how many other things in solar winds were compromised. It's not just going to be that one particular product that everybody is talking about. If their build process was compromised and their true supply chain was compromised, theoretically, everything they produce is suspect. You know, and until everything is looked at, you can't be assured that the solar winds attack is over and done with. You make an excellent point. Right. Yeah, I mean, if I want to put on my conspiracy theory hat, I could also say, well, how do we know this wasn't discovered on purpose? <laughs> How do we know there's not some other stuff going on? Like we're, we're so busy focused over here. And meanwhile, they're over here doing some stuff. Oh, yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. In all honesty, I think in this day and age, Tony, if you're not a conspiracy theorist, you're just not thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and one of the things, too, is like, you know, you know, these things happen, you know, solar winds happens and we all go, oh, well, you know, damn, damn Russia. We got to, you know, we got to do something about the about the Russians. And then half of happens. I'm like, well, we got to do something about the Chinese. And I'm like, OK, I just want to hold up this mirror for a second and let you know that the United States does this too. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure we are heavily into the Chinese and Russian network somewhere as well. Uh, at least, at least, you know, I've had my fingers crossed. I'm, I'm confident in the NSA and, and, and other, and other U S assets that, uh, you know, I, I feel like we have at least as good a capability, if not better. And, and that we're doing the same thing. Well, one would only hope, right? You know, it's um, but it's interesting when you step back and actually see who they always talk about. Who don't they really ever talk about in the news? They don't talk about the U.S. and they don't talk about Israel, right? You know, and and that begs the question: Are we that? Are we so much better than them as adversaries that we don't ever get caught? And I would like to think that there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Well, and you know, I know one of the one of the things that has been a a, a hot button issue, and uh, I, I know for you in particular is. And, and and for the industry, it should be more of a hot button issue for more people. Is that uh, the attribution? I mean, there, you know, there's long been talk about, well, we should we you know, we should hack back. We should retaliate. And it's like, well, can you be 100 percent sure that you're hacking? You know, you're attacking the right target. <laughs> like, can you be absolutely sure that you know where that came from? That's true. You know, which is why we use, you know, in, in the world of intelligence, you know, that, that's why we use words like levels of confidence, right? You have a low level of confidence, it's X. You have a medium level of confidence, it's X. You have a medium to high level of confidence, it's X. You have a high level of confidence, it's X. Um, because it's never 100% surety. It, not, in the, not in the world of the cybers. You know, this is not the world of kinetic based attacks where you can actually see a vapor trail of where something came from or where you can see where a troop moved from or where you can see a flanking maneuver came from. You know, that, that, that doesn't really work in the world of the cybers. And there's always going to be this level of squiffiness in attribution. Um, you know, it never gets to the point where you're going to be able to say it was 100% X, Y, Z. Because even if you look at the code, even if you were to look, rip apart the malware code and look at two different pieces of malware and say, wow, they have 90% of the same types of code on 90%. There's 90% genome accuracy between these two pieces of malware. They're written by the same particular person. 
And, you know, let's say that you get to 90% of that. It still might be used by somebody else. So even though you, you've got that level of question in there, you know, so um, so never 100% assurity in the world of attribution and stuff. There's always some room for it still could be somebody else utilizing the attack or it could be somebody else who bought the malware from somebody else. Or in the case of things like Russia and Iran, you know, we know that in certain periods of time, the Russians have compromised Iranian networks and launched attacks from Iranian networks. Um, is it then the Iranians or the Russians that are actually doing it? You know, so that there's always this level of question in the back of my mind. And I think any good intelligence analyst is always going to have that level of questioning. Right. Well, and, and, and you know, part of it comes back to the, the conspiracy theory side of things where if you're looking at the code and you see these indicators where you're like, look, there are certain certain tells that say that this is from this, you know, it's from APT 28. Like there's certain tells we, you know, we can kind of like go through this and say that that that's that's kind of how they work. That's their their you know method of operation. So we think it's them. Well, if I'm someone else, if I'm a different cybercrime group, why wouldn't I intentionally put those tells in there like that? I'm going to go out of my way to do that. And and now it's up to the analyst. It's up to the security researcher to try to like parse that and say, OK, well, wait, I'm seeing these things, but are they legitimate or were they planted? Absolutely. And that's how good red teaming works, right? When you get right down to it, it's actually utilizing the TTPs of a known adversary in your own attack methodology. You know, if you want to see if your defenses work against the Russians, attack someone like the Russians. If you want to know if their defenses work against the Chinese, you attack them like the Chinese would attack. It doesn't mean the Chinese are attacking. It means you're using the TTPs of that particular adversary to do your attacking. And there's a lot of truth to what you're saying in the fact that TTPs are well documented. You know, if you look at the MITRE attack framework, there's a lot of documentation in the MITRE attack framework on APT28 methodology, APT29 methodology, Chinese methodology, Iranian methodology. So you can actually base attack simulations around those TTPs. It gets kind of fuzzy then, like if a real attacker actually utilizes that, where is the line? Then it comes down to how good your analysts actually are at determining a false flag from an actual real attack. And there's not a lot of people who can differentiate between a well-staged fake adversary and the actual adversary themselves. That's hard to do. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm gonna, I want to sh shift gears. One of the things that's been in the news a little bit more recently now has been, you know, I think it was beginning of this week or over the weekend, uh, you know, there was the news about uh, you know, data from 533 million Facebook users uh, being exposed online. Um, and, you know, subsequently, I saw some other story claiming that, you know, hundreds of millions of LinkedIn accounts were were leaked as well or exposed. And I haven't really seen that corroborated, so I'm not 100% sure on that one. But with Facebook, it's been interesting because you know, initially it comes out like, oh, well, it's, you know, the, Facebook was breached and 500 million accounts have been exposed. Well, then Facebook says, well, no, actually, yes, we were breached, but you already knew about that. That was back in 2019. It's an old breach. Um, you know, the data is just now being, you know, shared. Like, so it's 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 not new. It's not a new breach. <laughs> it's old, old old data now being shared. It's an um, old breach, which, by the way, we never told you about. <laughs> Well, and but then but then there's also you know, there there have been reports that it wasn't even really a breach or 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 a you know leak per se that it was really just data that's been scraped mm -hmm. and it's interesting because the 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 line there is 
you know, we're we're the the running theme of this podcast is going to be blurred lines. The <laughs> because right. the line there is kind of blurred. Well, you know, like okay, there 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 certainly there are some things on you know that Facebook knows about me that I haven't shared publicly. And so what you can scrape is somewhat different than what Facebook actually knows, mm-hmm. but not by much. You know, I mean, I, I share enough on, you know, publicly on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, whatever that, you know, if you if all you do is scrape the data, then you pretty much know, uh, you know, uh, what you need to know about me. Um, and and and, you know, sort of on that note. I'm also fairly, you know, jaded <laughs> as someone who's been, you know, working in and around cybersecurity for for 20 plus years that when when a breach does happen and they're like, well, you know, your 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 credit card has been exposed, your social security number has been exposed, you know, they they know your email address. I'm like, who the hell doesn't know my email address at this point? Who doesn't know my social security number? Like I I have I put no faith whatsoever that my social security number is not publicly accessible. <laughs> Yep, I, I agree completely. I, I think there's an odd perception around things like that. Um, you know, you, one of the things you, you made a really good point on is th- what's the difference between a scraping and an actual data breach, right? You know, and, and I don't necessarily think there's really any difference between the two. Maybe it's, you know, if you're sharing it on Facebook, you're sharing it on Facebook. It's there in some way, shape or form. Do your privacy settings or your group settings really have anything to fundamentally do with it at that point? I don't think it really does. I really think that if someone effectively scrapes any particular timeline or any particular website, they're they're, they're going to get the data in some way, shape, or form. Um, or let's just say they don't get all of Tony Bradley's data from one particular scrape on Facebook. I can get it as a combination from Facebook and a LinkedIn scrape and all the other places that you have a social media profile in to where I'm going to get all the stuff anyway, right? You, you know, so it's not that it's it's all in one place or it's not all in one place. Um, your, your data exists in many different places that get exposed through many different means. And all of those things get scraped and all of those things can get looked at. Um, you, you know, so I think that there's really no fundamental difference between a data breach and a data scrape in, uh, in that particular point of view. I also think it's interesting how some people will react differently to one platform getting scraped versus another platform getting straight when they don't realize that the data that you're probably sharing on those different social media platforms is probably the same, you know, and at the end of the day, the data is already out there. You might as well put it on a billboard on the highway. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and, and I've been guilty to some extent, for example, I use an iPhone. I, on some level have more confidence in Apple's both both in, in how they do it and just in their basic integrity and principles related to data privacy and security. And so, like, I trust Apple on mm-hmm. some. I don't trust Google at all. <laughs> I, I like as far as I'm concerned, Google is literally that's their business model. The whole the, the whole business is built on sharing my data. Absolutely. Um, and I, so I'm like, all right, well, if you have an Android phone, there's system. No, you're 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 spot on. Correct there again. It's um, and that's perception on your part. Right. And I, but I think there's a certain amount of truth to that, because at the end of the day, um, Apple is a much more vetted platform in a lot of ways than, let's say, Android is. Right. If you look at the differences between historically between like the Google Play Store and the uh, and the Apple Store, there's a higher level of vetting 
that it takes to get put your your apps put and displayed and sold through the Apple Store than it does in the, in in the Google Play Store. So it's it's interesting that you make the analogy of Google versus Apple because you know the it, it's easier to get a fake Android app in the Android Store than it is to get a bogus app in the Apple Play in, in the Apple Store. If you know what I mean, one right. is more vetted than the other is. So I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. Um, you know, the platform does come into play. And historically, Apple has been a less exploited platform than the Windows platform has or the Android platform has. That's that's a that's a statistical fact. And and to be to to be, uh, you know, totally you know honest or whatever, like you know, I, I I generally have used Windows. There was a brief period where I had a MacBook Air. I mean, and and basically, my experience with the with the Mac led me to understand that it's not fundamentally better. <laughs> than windows it's different you know like it, it has its own issues both both operationally and with the user uh, interface and and from a security perspective it has its own issues um you know and and i always maintained that you know windows is attacked more not because it's more vulnerable but because the the pool is larger like if i'm going to launch an attack why would i attack someone who has like three percent market share there's no point that's exactly right it's the same reason you go after the supply chain, right? Think, you know, you know, take that back to your solar winds discussion. And, you know, you can go after one or you can go after 18,000, which one's easier to go after. It depends upon your point of view. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, businesses, you know, your, your users out on planet Earth, what are they using? They're using Windows, you know? So you're not going to write toward the 2% of people who are running Macs. And, you know, you can write just as effective malware for the Mac platform as you can for the Windows platform. You know, malware is malware, code is code. You can write malware for any system that's out there. It just comes down to where do you want your effectiveness? You know, you're gonna get more effectiveness from writing malware that works in a Windows environment than you will in a Linux environment or a Mac environment. It doesn't mean you can't write malware for those. It's just, you're gonna get a different user base. Um, you know, and you're gonna make more money with Windows ransomware than you will for Mac ransomware. That's a simple fact. Yeah, uh, uh, interesting sort of like, segue that kind of connects some of these dots uh, is there was, a, there was a recent story about a guy who used some uh, cryptocurrency app from the app store and it stole a million dollars from him. And so he has, you know, complained. He was like, well, Apple, you know, I, I, I was, I, I thought you vetted these apps and I thought you, you, you look for this stuff. And I believe Apple's official response was we do before we approve them to go into the app store. However, we are not actively analyzing and vetting every update they do. Sure. So it comes back to that kind of sort of supply chain attack. It's like, well, if I can get my foot in the door, if I can get my app into the app store, now I can do whatever I want. That's an, that, that's an interesting point. So, you know, that, that begs the question of then, do I as an adversary then want to analyze apps that are in the app store for periods of time, right? Let me see. Who's got the most apps in the app store? What does their update process look like? What's their update frequency look like? And do I want to make a determination on who to compromise? That's an interesting idea because, again, you can actually say, all right, well, these brands are in the app store and they're on a lot of endpoints um, and they update over this frequency. I can guarantee you I can pop one of them and insert my code into there. That's a, that's a very interesting way of, uh, of, of looking at it. Again, classic supply chain but going after the ones that are on the most kinds of endpoints that I want to go after, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, that this is the endpoint of the future in some way, shape or form, right? You know, you, you've always got it with you, you know, like, like we talked about before, it's tracking you. It knows where I am. I've got my phone with me. It knows where I'm at. 
And that, that's the end point of the future. You do your business on there. You do your banking on there. I could do my corporate email on there. I could do everything on there. Why not target that play store? That's a great point. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I've, I've you know, seen in, in the last year, you know, you have, you know, as, as we've been dealing with this pandemic is, you know, there are all these like crazy, you know, you know, the, there there are some rational conversations to be had about vaccine, not vaccine. Is the vaccine safe? You know, that's fine. I'm not saying that everyone should just absolutely accept everything they hear. But but there are, are conversations out there about, well, don't get the vaccine because Bill Gates is going to implant a chip in you. Uh, to to you know track what you track your movements. I'm like, well, why would they need to do that? Everyone has an iPhone or an Android phone. Like, who who doesn't have that? And mm-hmm. almost everyone has at least one, if not all, of Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, you know, you have a, a you have a Gmail address. You've got you're like you're 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 buying from Amazon. There are so many ways that you are being monitored 24 seven. Like nobody needs to put a chip in your blood. Well, it's true. You know, it's that's uh, it's on the continuum of things that I would worry about. A chip in the blood from Bill Gates because of a virus uh, vaccination is not really high up there on my uh, <laughs> on my give a crap list, if you know what I mean. Um, there, there's other things that I particularly worry about. Um, I, you know, I look at vetting overall, right? You know, and and ha- how is anything particularly vetted, whether it's a vaccine or an app or an operating system or whatever, how is it vetted? You know, is, is what's the burn-in period of time? How have they looked at the interactions and stuff like that? I look more at that than I do about any one particular sector, because like you said, if they want to profile you and track you, they're going to profile and track you. You know, it's, um, it, do, do, do they want to track where my GPS dot is, or do they want to profile my behavior? I think people don't understand the differences between those two things is they may know where you are physically because you've got that little GPS dot and they're actually tracking you. Um, the, the greater concern is, is how they're profiling you with the data that you actually share. That would be the larger concern that I would have for things like that. Not necessarily that they know physically where I am on planet Earth. They know that anyway. They know where my car is. You know, more to the point of how are they profiling my behavior because of the data and how I use my actual platforms. That would be, that's what concerns me. Well, and I feel like there's a there 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 is a pro and a con to that. Like there is a you know the, there's a um it, it is not black and white. Uh, uh, it's not a black and white issue because on the one hand, you know, I like prints. I like golf. I like you know uh, you know whatever football. Uh, you know, there, there are things that I like. And if I'm if you're going to put ads in my face, I would rather have those ads be related to something I like. I don't need you to show me ads for like, you know, knitting. You know, I, I don't give a shit. Um, so from some pers- from, from some perspective, it makes sense for them to say, OK, look, we just want to understand, well, what are you interested in so we can target our ads better? And that makes sense. Now, I wish they would fix the part where I go out on Amazon and I search for you know, Logitech keyboards. And for the next month and a half, all I see are Logitech keyboard ads. Cause I'm like, well, look, look, either I did the research and I bought myself a Logitech keyboard, in which case we're done here. Mm-hmm. Or I did the research and decided I don't want a Logitech keyboard, in which case quit fucking showing it to me. <laughs> like by all means, if you're someone else, so, like target me with other keyboards or target me with related stuff, but don't keep showing me the same thing I already looked at. 
you know, or, or, or understand that, all right, well, here, this, Tony just bought a Logitech keyboard. He might be interested in a Logitech mouse or, or this screen right. or, or stuff. So there's, it's not, it's not black and white and nor, nor did I make it out to be, but again, you know, profiling is profiling any way that you look at it. It depends upon your use case for the data that you're profiling is what you're really getting down to. Right. And, um, is, is that kind of targeted profiling. And again, that's, it depends on the use case. That's good or bad on the good side you're getting Logitech keyboard information on the bad side, you're getting propaganda. So it's a continuum is, is and, and you're getting, you know, I think that, you know, largely the, the, the root of the problem with a lot of the perceived polarity. Like, I feel like, I feel like our, 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 our polarity as a, as a civilization in the, in the United States is perceived to be dramatically higher online and it isn't real life. Like, I mean, I live in Texas and, and, you know, so I know ideologically, I don't agree with, you know, 90% of this state, <laughs> but I could still go sit down and have coffee with someone and, you know, not get into a fist fight, sure. you know, but, but the perception online is, you know, like, no, we are, we are, we are mortal enemies. We are diametrically opposed. And, and the, the profiling fuels that because oh. then, you know, so once you kind of, once you go down, once you choose your path, it's almost, it's almost like a, uh, uh, what, what the hell are the name of those books? Like the choose your, choose your, choose your own path type books or whatever. It's like, once you get to the, the first chapter and you say, well, I'm going to go, you know, progressive or conservative. And then, and then it kind of branches out from there. Like, okay, well now I'm going to go, you know, kind of, you know, far left into like socialism or I'm going to go far right into QAnon and, and, and it, and it, as you kind of go through it keeps funneling you in and 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 building walls around you with that profile and so you almost can't break out of it i mean i i said many years ago and i and i i i, I still maintain there should legally be a master reset like i should have a button i can push on facebook or google or whatever that says i want you to forget my entire fucking profile and let me start over because maybe I did, maybe I, you know, was bored one day and I did some research on crazy QAnon conspiracies. Well, I don't want you showing that, showing that shit for the rest of my life. Like, <laughs> you know, I need, I need a reset. I need to, I need a clean slate. Yeah. And it's context. It's, it's all a continuum. You know, at the end of the day, you know, just because it's like you say, you, you live in a very conservative part of the world. You yourself are not that conservative, you know, just, um, they're, they're two completely different things. You know, um, it, it's funny because I live here on the East Coast in uh, in Maryland, but I go to North Carolina and Virginia and West Virginia a lot, almost on a, on a weekly, monthly basis. And it's interesting that once you get out of those heavily populated city areas, it, it's very, very different than it is in those heavily populated city kinds of areas and stuff like that. It's less polarized in a lot of ways the farther away you get from certain population densities. So um, I think there's a lot to what you're saying about it not being as polarizing in real life as it is on the, uh, on the interwebs, because yeah, if you were to just look at human or American behavior from the lens of Facebook, it would look like the country is on fire, right? You know, it, it, it really would. If that's your perception of the United States and our political landscape, and it's based solely on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. It's a dumpster fire. You know, but but once you get out of the screen and actually into real life and stuff like that, people are quite reasonable for the most part. You know, you can sit in a coffee shop and have a conversation with people, um, you know, of all these different political backgrounds. It's not the dumpster fire that Twitter makes it out to be. But um, but boy, yeah, you're right. Is the lens of social media is 
by definition, polarizing. It's a polarizing media if you don't get outside in the real world. Yeah. Well, and like I say, so so that's that's where I feel like the so on on, on the the pro side is there are some advantages to to profiling you and being able to tailor the information I show you to the things that you're interested in and the things that matter to you. The con, the downside to that is some AI algorithm deciding what matters to you. Yep. And 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 painting you into that corner, and 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 now and now you don't get to see other stuff, and so like and so if all you see is one side of the story constantly, all you see it it becomes self affirming. There's information bias there of of well, of course I'm right, and the other side is wrong. Every single thing I see online says I'm right. So the AI becomes self fulfilling in that sense, and it, it, by definition. The algorithm is polarizing at that point because Tony's looking at X. I'm going to give him X. Dave is looking at Y. I'm going to give him Y. And Y gets reinforced to Dave. X gets reinforced to Tony. Tony becomes more X. Dave becomes more Y. And and you, you know you, you get that kind of bias and stuff like that. Um, whereas most people don't want to necessarily investigate the other side or have their uh, bias challenged in most cases. You know, and again, it's easy to have that bias reinforced when you're only looking at the screen, when you're only being given those things that you're actually searching for. But damn it, once you get out into the real world and you go to a coffee shop or you go to a mall, by definition, you know, you get exposed to every single side. Um, well, you said for that. In that in that scenario where I, I'm I'm only seeing X and I'm becoming more X and you're only seeing Y and becoming more Y, then even if you and I are on Facebook and we try to have a rational conversation, you know, like, let's say we're, you know, we are rational, sane people. And I say, well, well, Dave, look, there's this and this and this, you know, pieces of evidence. Well, if you've never seen any of that evidence and everything you've been shown is the contrary, it, it makes it very hard to have a rational conversation about that. Absolutely. And the thing is, because the algorithm, like at, at the Google level, like, you know, at this point, you know, yeah, there's Bing, but, you know, basically Google has a monopoly on on search. And if 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 the Google algorithm isn't is corrupted as well. So like, let's say I, you know, because there's, there are a lot of people who have, have jumped on this bandwagon of, you know, all journalists are evil and the mainstream media is evil and you have to do your own research. And I've had debates with people where I'm like, well, how the hell would you do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got someone whose whose literal job is to like report on what happens at the White House. They are standing in the White House having conversations with people in the White House, and you're saying, "Well, I don't believe them. I'm going to do my own research." Like, well, where? What are you What are you going to look at that will that will corroborate or refute what was te- what was said? You have no access to the research. But even if you try, you know, so you go on Google and you type in a search. Well, if the algorithm is trained to tailor your results. Then even when you think you are doing your due diligence, you think you're trying to do the research and see what other po- opposing viewpoints are out there, but Google has funneled you over here to X, <laughs> and Google says, "Well, we're going to k- keep reinforcing what you already believe." You you would have to find a way to actually utilize the the Google algorithm of your polar opposite in that sense, right? Because you know when Dave is at home using Dave's laptop and Dave's stuff. You know, Dave has searched via, you know, his own, you know, predilections and biases on his computer. You know, so if, if you were, so if Tony, if Tony was to come and search Google on Dave's laptop, 
you, your results for the same searches on my laptop will probably fundamentally be different than the results of Tony searching for something on Tony's laptop because your algorithms and interactions with Google and everything for how you're signed into your profile is different on yours than it would be on mine. So, you know, you make a really good point in, in that the, the behaviors are specific to not only the person, but where the person is doing that at. You know, think about going to like a public library and utilizing a public computer that everybody on planet Earth has theoretically searched on. Right. You know, that might be a more accurate representation of different people's behaviors than utilizing the same laptop that a conservative has done their searching and research on or a laptop that a, that a liberal has done their searching and stuff on because they're both tuned to those user experiences. Whereas at a, an open cafe or something like that might be a bit more reflective of a bunch of different points of view. Right. The algorithm is a bit looser in, uh, in that sense. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, and and the thing is, I don't really know, it, especially at this point. I feel like I feel like there's like a snowball effect, and like the, all these things are kind of picking up momentum when we need to kind of put the brakes on and say, wait a minute, we need to figure out how to like try to solve this. But it happens on like every level, you know. I mean, if if all you watch is Fox News and OAN and Newsmax, you get an entirely different narrative of what is going on outside in the world than you do if you watch CNN and and MSNBC. They, they're totally different stories like it's not it's not just there's not just differences of opinion of what's going on it's literally a difference of, of of opinion of what is going on well it's 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 almost a different position of the facts even when you get right down to it right you know it's not just the conclusions that somebody draws it's just like two two events can have happened and what two different people are going to even report on that they're, they're probably going to choose even different facts to facts, you know, to, to actually relay based upon their particular audience, right? You know, so so that's always going to be very, very interesting as well. So it's not just they're reporting a conclusion or making it contextually different. They're probably even looking at the artifacts of the story and what they report on and picking and choosing different things to, to even gather and report on. So I think it's, again, it's that polarizing aspect of content in some way, shape or form that um, drives a lot of how those things operate. Um, it's hard to get around that too. You know, it's hard to get people away from the preconceived notions. Yeah, it is. Well, all right. So I think uh, you know the 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 net net of this conversation is we're all screwed. Have we solved anything? I mean, I thought you told me we were going to come on here and solve all the world's problems in under an hour, Tony. Um, I, I don't think we've made very much progress, unless the conclusion we've come to is like you said, we're all screwed. <laughs> right. I think the the conclusion is drink more tequila. Drink more tequila. You know, it's funny. It, it's um, you know, since I've been kind of back on social media since like January, I've been away from it for a long period of time when I had switched roles. So it's kind of interesting having been away from you know the the quote unquote PR and media aspect of information security, which I was away from for you know literally about five six years consistently, and then now having come back to it in some way, shape, or form since about January, it's fascinating what has changed and what has not changed. And more has not changed than has changed. I'm seeing some of the same discussions and some of the same problems that I did before. Um, and even some of the same players talking about some of the same things. So it's kind of funny as to what messages have changed and what messages, you know, haven't changed. And I, I swear, I think less has changed than less hasn't, you know? Like I, 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 I feel I, I'm feeling judged. I feel like you were watching the uh, conversation between uh, Ben Tomhev and I. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those interesting, you know, I, I'm a disinterested third party observer in some cases. But when I stepped away, everybody was talking about ransomware, Russia and China. 
Now I've come back to it. Everybody's talking about ransomware, Russia, and China. Maybe some of it is a little contextually different, right? but it's still a lot of the same main conversations. Um, and I'm even seeing some of the same discussions about detection versus protection, identification versus detection. And some of those things are even still fundamentally you know, the, uh, the same. So it's, it's just interesting as to what portions of those conversations have advanced and what portions of those conversations haven't um, advanced. You know? and, and I think going forward, it's actually gonna be even a little bit more interesting because going back to your blurred lines discussion, you know, in, in a remote, you know, everybody's going to remote work, right? You know, because of the COVIDs and, and everything else. And now we're going to transition to these, you know, remote work environments and stuff like that. So does that mean then the corporate network is now part of my home network or my home network is now part of the corporate network? And how does that affect the landscape threat wise? How does that affect how the Russians and Chinese will act? Because going back to what you were talking about before, um, does the regular home user now have to worry about China and Russia? That depends. Does the regular home user work for Lockheed Martin or a big company and now they're logging on only from home? Um, you got a different threat landscape there. Um, you know, so I think even things like that are going to be very interesting in 2021 and 2022 is your blurring of the lines thing is going to become blurrier. You know, as if we hadn't already touched on all the all the sunshine of, uh, of the future and stuff like that, I think that's a blurry line that's worthy of its own discussion. Right. Well, and I feel like, though, that to, to kind of go back to the, the actually what you just kind of talked about is, you know, you were gone for a while. You come back and you see that a lot of the conversations are, are contextually they're you know, they're, they're thematically the same. Maybe the context is slightly different. And I feel like that's really all of cybersecurity. I mean, you know, if I look at the last 20 years, like ultimately, like, you know, the the the, the goals of the attackers and the goals of the defenders haven't fundamentally changed and technology continues to evolve new techniques are, are are developed on both sides um you know new things are introduced and yet fundamentally the, like the, the the core fundamentals of cybersecurity have remained the same and 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 continue to remain the same we've just kind of moved the line you know like we talk about how you know the network perimeter is dead well i mean we've been saying that for a decade um, but, but now I think COVID, you know, really kind of, you know, put the nail in it to your point, you know, it's like, well, no, there, you know, there literally just isn't a network. <laughs> like the network is the world now. There really is. We're all part of the same land, quite frankly. You know, that, that's an interesting thought in and of itself is that, you know, we're all kind of on the same network now, planet earth, you know, and it's all the same interconnected network. I think there's a lot of truth to what you just said. Um, and, and I think the, the speed of attack is a lot quicker. I think than it has been in, in years past. And I have always said that the adversary drives the defense roadmap in a certain way. You know, like for instance, you can't come out with the, the cyber solution until there's actually a cyber attack in some way, shape or form. There's nuances there, um, you know, but you, you're not gonna necessarily defend against firmware if there's no firmware attacks. You, you see what I mean? You know, so in a certain sense, the adversary drive, the adversary and what they do on the offensive side drives the defensive roadmap in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, and the adversary is in 2020 and 2021 at the top of their game. You know, um, uh, there's some real talented adversaries out there. There always have been. But now I think you start seeing it a lot quicker than in, 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 in years past. Like there's now more firmware attacks than previously, or maybe they're just more known. You know, you're, you're going to see more of the root of trust abuses than before. Again, not to say it's a new attack vector. It's not. But the time 
to market, so to speak, for some of those things is, I think, quicker than ever before. Yeah. All right, man. Well, it was awesome. It was it was really great to to, to catch up and to chat. Uh, it, it has been too long. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, kind of where you'll be at or what you'll be doing, but I, I am, I'm told I've, I've heard rumors that, uh, black hat and Defcon will actually be a live in-person event this year. So I am theoretically planning on being there. We pray summer camp is always a, uh, you know, it's always a great thing. Um, I had gone in 2019 and I had actually been away from uh, Defcon and the con circuit for quite some time for the same reasons and stuff like that. And I had the greatest time, you know, when 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 I had finally said, oh, yeah, I want to go back to this. And it was just terrific. I had I had such a great time seeing everybody. And it was just HallCon all over again. You know, just camp yourself down in a particular spot and let the con kind of walk by and come to you. And it was just wonderful. Right. So yeah, I, I think vendor, vendors have a different perspective on, on what the conferences are, are about. You know, they're, they're trying to market and got swag and yeah. presentations. And I'm like. I'm there to, you know, run into Dave Marcus in the hall at, you know, at, at, at uh, you know, Mandalay Bay. Was it Mandalay Bay? I think it might have. Well, it, was, it, it was when you and I met uh, at DEF CON, it was at the Rio still. That's true. You're right. And it was actually at a, um, I think we accidentally ran into each other at just a bar off the beaten path. Yeah. And then we just chatted for a while. And I'll tell you the truth, that's how some of the best conversations I've ever had have taken place is, is at HallCon and, you know, BarCon and stuff like that, the conferences, between the conferences, so to speak, right? And at that point, at that point, Defcon, or Black Hat was still at Caesars Palace. So Caesars Palace in Rio, now it's Mandalay Bay, and I don't even know, like, DEFCON is, like, all over the place now. Yeah, it's almost kind of grown too big for its own britches in, uh, in some ways. I mean, I've been going since... Oh God, what DefCon Five or something like that? And you know, so I've literally seen it go from you know small hotels that had 150 people at it to 30,000, 20,000 people. So it's interesting to see that dynamic change. Um, in many ways, it's reflective of Infosec, right? You know, Infosec has grown from just this this small group of 12 people, <laughs> you know, to you know a worldwide global industry and stuff like that. And just to see the demographics change over the years is really very, very interesting as well. You see the different makeup of everybody really fundamentally change over the years and how that affects, you know, things as well. Well, and it's, it's interesting because you, you had RSA mm -hmm. and then you had, and then, and the, so RSA was more the, the corporate vendor centric thing. And then, you, and then you had Black Hat and Black Hat was more of the practitioner in the trenches presentations. But then as they matured, Black Hat became more like RSA, and then they're like, oh, okay, well now we're going to have DefCon, and DefCon's going to be where the real the real hackers meet and talk about what what what's really going on. But I feel like over the last decade or so, even DefCon has matured. Like DefCon, it becomes more you know more corporate and and more mature. And now you've got kind of like B sides kind of filling that void. It's like there always needs to be some like up and coming conference where where the real hackers can meet. No, that's absolutely true. Is is because you know you get um. You get certain messages at certain conferences, right? You know, you, you've got a certain polished message at a certain level of conference, you know, and a, and a much more technical edge to certain other conferences and stuff like that. You know, so it just depends on what it is that you're looking for. But it, but it's hard to get the pure technical um, conferences that don't have some level of sponsorship in them, because let's be honest, you need some level of sponsorship. You know, it's not cheap 
to get a hotel and a whole bunch of people together in one particular area, you know, and, and it's such a, um, it's such a big industry. You know, you can just have a cloud technical conference, right. You know, or you can just have an endpoint or an Android technical conference from a, from a security perspective. I, I mean, the, the field is so big now that there's infinite paths and infinite lanes and infinite niches within just InfoSec, let alone greater technology, you know? So it's, it's kind of a good time to be alive, but it's gotta be unwieldy <laughs> from a certain perspective as well, you know? Yeah. So, all right. Well, hey, you know, fing, fing, fingers crossed uh, I'll be in Vegas, so. I plan on being there as well. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely uh, stalk the bars, so to speak, to look for my old buddy, uh, Tony, looking to, uh, looking to catch up. All right, man. Well, thanks cool. for joining me and uh, yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. Thanks for the time, Tony. Always good to talk to you, man. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Let me know if you love it. Let me know if it sucks. And uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.